I'm Sean Eckford, and this is Coast Reporter Radio, your audio companion to the Coast Reporter, newspaper of record for British Columbia's lower Sunshine Coast. Voters in Powell River Sunshine Coast will be going to the polls October 24th, unless they're among the tens of thousands of British Columbians who've opted to vote by mail this time, or take advantage of advance voting. Starting today, we're presenting feature interviews with the three candidates vying to be our MLA. Liberal candidate Sandra Stoddard Hansen is a resident of Half Moon Bay with a long career in the public and private sectors, currently working as a consultant focusing on the transportation industry. She joined the Coast Reporter editorial team via Zoom on the morning of October 13th, so our conversation does not reflect any developments in the campaign since then. So I'm here with our editor, John Gleason, reporter Sophie Woodruff, and BC Liberal candidate Sandra Stoddard Hansen for the first of our feature interviews of the candidates here in Powell River Sunshine Coast. Good morning, Sandra, and welcome. Good morning, Sean, Sophie, John. Nice to be here. Likewise, Sandra. Yeah, nice to, nice to see you. And John, I think we'll, uh, we'll open up with uh, some questions from you, please. Okay. Uh, yeah, Sandra, we just uh, finished listening to the uh, to the platform uh, launch from from uh, your leader. Uh, I'm sure you were probably listening to it as well. And uh, during the questions that followed, about a third of the questions were about the um, the unfortunate Zoom meeting that that happened. Uh, uh, that, that was publicized over the weekend. Um, it happened last month. I, I'd like to get this out of the way first because it's become, I guess, the uh, the latest distraction, certainly. I, I'm sure that's how, how, how the party would see it uh, and an unfortunate one, but it's certainly uh, being jumped on by all the media and uh, it, it's generating a lot of comments. Uh, on the various taken a look at it they have their own opinions of it first of all I'd like to know how you feel about the whole thing yourself uh, well first let me say that I'm not a fan of roast that roast format um, I always find that kind of uh, humor that you usually see in a roast really disagreeable um, so I, w I was not at that roast meeting I did however tune into it to hear what Ralph Sultan had to say uh, on his departure and, and that was really quite lovely that part of the part of the roast um, I saw so my view of uh, of the issue was what I saw in the media and what I saw in the clips and I think it was very unfortunate I understand that Jane Thor Thornthwaite in fact I did see her apology or her acknowledging that she had uh, reached out to Bowen Ma to apologize um, all of us make mistakes. That was a bad mistake. Um, from my own personal point of view, uh, I would like your listeners to know that I have been a champion of women's rights uh, from just about day one. Uh, throughout my career, I've been in positions where, uh, where I was one of 150, uh, the only woman in, uh, in Transport Canada on the executive committee. And so I'm very sensitive to the, the issues of, of women's rights and the need for respect. And I find it very unfortunate that sometimes things that are said in jest uh, are very hurtful and demeaning. And so I sympathize with, with Bowen Ma, who was the subject of, of that particular comment. Uh, but I, I do think that we have to learn from that and, and move forward from it. 
Um, so um, uh, th those are my views on that. Do you think it's going to, is it going to do some uh, damage to the campaign in general and in this writing in particular? Well, I would, I would hope not. I would hope, uh, if I may answer the part of the question that you asked about this writing in particular, I hope that our voters will look at the candidates and look at the merits of the candidates and decide which candidate is best prepared and best, uh, best able to serve the needs of, of this writing. Um, that's what I hope for. Will it, uh, will it impact the campaign? Um, I, I can't say. I, I don't know. I'm sure that, uh, you know, there, there is an impact uh, that will be felt and hopefully we can work hard in the next 11 days to regain the trust and, and, um, and uh, repeat our, our platform and what we stand for and what we hope to accomplish if we're elected and that that mes message will resonate through come election day. Okay, last question on this subject, uh, from me anyway. Uh, the, we heard uh, Mr. Wilkinson uh, questioned uh, just now about how he, why, why he didn't uh, intervene when, because it, was, it wasn't just a, a quip, it was a fairly long rolled out story, obviously, with, and it had a couple of different points where it was objectionable. Uh, so the question is why he didn't intervene. Why um, did he speak to uh, uh, the, the MLA afterwards? And he said, no. Uh, are, are you satisfied with how he, he has since apologized? Uh, he hasn't directly reached out uh, to uh, Ms. Ma. Are you satisfied with the way he's handled it? Um, I. I uh, am sorry that I, I didn't uh, hear hear his statement. Um, so what you're telling me is um, I'm hearing it for the first time now. Um, I I am um, I'm disappointed that that kind of discussion and that kind of joking uh, was not brought to a stop during during the event. Uh, and I think that's all I can say about that. Thank you. Sandra, let's uh, talk now about some more riding specific uh, uh, things because you and I have been uh, involved in, his, in an exchange as we start to prepare our, our, our brief candidate profiles for the upcoming Coast Reporter. And when I asked about an, an important issue, you mentioned the, uh, the situation with the highway and, and the ferry bypass. And I know you've talked about the importance of that before, but in the email uh, you sent me, you did something you haven't done yet, which would be very, very specific in saying that you have a commitment from Mr. Wilkinson that a Liberal government would begin a first phase of construction of a highway bypass with a $50 million investment. That's, that's quite specific. Uh, so tell me, first of all, you know, how you went about securing this commitment from your party leader and uh, any more details you can tell us about what it is you're promising. Well, I'm, I'm promising just that. I, I think that this is a really important issue for, for our community and for all parts of our community, not just the southern part of the riding, but the northern part of the riding too. Because when they're transiting from Powell River uh, down to catch the ferry at Langdale, you know, the importance of being able to get there efficiently and effectively is just a, a, of interest to them as well. Um, so I, um, I felt that this was a really critical issue for our community. Um, you know, I've been involved in politics for a long time and knocked on doors in our riding and 
in several previous elections, and this is an issue that comes forward. And I felt that, uh, you know, I would um, I would want to have assurances that we could begin to work on this important issue. And if I can just talk about you know, my vision for the, the bypass highway, I think we have another really good example in the province of, uh, of how this has been really successful, and that's on Vancouver Island. The main highway used to go through all the, the communities along the shoreline on Vancouver Island. And uh, you know there were traffic jams and traffic congestions and through traffic was having to slow down to 50 every time they went through a community, just as they have to to here through all our communities on our little string of communities along Highway 101. And with the introduction of the Island Highway, which took many, many years and, uh, and a, a lot of effort to build that highway and a lot of funds, you know, their communities along the shoreline have become beautiful little tourist destinations and uh, are really accessible for people using scooters or bicycles or walkers or joggers and they've really made a beautiful scenic route. So it hasn't driven traffic out of the communities. It's enabled more traffic that is, uh, you know, is, is not heavy vehicle traffic and through traffic. And so I, I, that's my vision for the coast, that we can have that kind of a highway that will take our through traffic out of our communities and bring our, our recreational and personal travel onto that highway and you know, reduce the speed limit so it's safer. So when, when you talk about a $50 million investment, this is, this is not commitment for another study. You're saying this is commitment to actually put shovels in the ground and start building an, a, an actual road we can drive on. That is correct. Uh, and and your, your vision would see this um, going down at uh, the southern end closer to Gibson's in the ferry terminal? Or is, did you get that specific when you went to the leader and said, here's what I want to pitch? I, I did not get that specific, and I think it would really depend on you know what uh, what would be the the best as an initial investment. I mean it it seems you know from I haven't seen the engineering studies, but it seems logical that it would be appropriate to um, you know to fix that problem of coming up that big hill and having a huge traffic congestion at the top of the big hill, and then traffic sort of snaking through the the community all in and around Gibson as a first priority. But I would certainly rely on some engineering expertise for you know the the best way, the best um, uh, the best outcome for that initial fifty million dollar investment. Where would that be? The other transportation issue you and I have talked about recently is, is, is BC ferries, because when the NDP platform came out, I noticed a marked contract to the, contrast with the amount of attention that they paid to BC ferries compared to 2017. This is also marked in the Liberal platform. The words BC ferries don't even appear in your platform uh, as, as a provincial issue at the party level, but you know you have some experience with the inner workings of BC ferries and some ideas about what to do with our local service. So what is it you would hope to uh, uh, convince a Liberal government to do, should there be one? Uh, should there be a Liberal government, I would be very keen to take this on as a top priority. I think that the service to uh, to our community, we, have, we are a very dependent community. We have four ferry routes within our riding, which is really quite astonishing. We're probably alone in that regard of having that number of, uh, of critical routes for our very dependent community. 
I, I believe that we have some, um, some problems with on-time performance. I believe that during the busy summer months and into an ever-expanding shoulder season, we have problems with capacity. We have problems with lack of certainty of travel because of the on-time performance problems and also because of the unavailability of sufficient numbers of reservations. People you know, that have a doctor's appointment in Vancouver that head down to the ferry terminal, you know, they're not sure if the ferry is going to be leaving on time and if they're going to make it on time to their doctor's appointments. I think we need to, um, to work with the ferries to make sure that uh, you know, that we can get a commitment to better on-time performance, more certainty of travel, and more capacity during the busy times. And I think that this is the purview of government. Government is the biggest customer of BC Ferries. There is a service agreement and a contract between BC Ferry Services and government that sets out in amazing detail what services government will support. Uh, because most of our ferry routes are non-self-sustaining, so government lends support to keep services at a certain level. And so I think within, uh, within the, um, uh, the, the mandate of government, we can adjust that contract to pr provide more service levels that are more appropriate to our, our growing community uh, here. And so I would work really hard to make sure that that happened for our community if I were elected in a BC Liberal government. And now I'm sure you're aware that uh, for a lot of people in this riding, the problem we have with BC ferries goes back to decisions made by previous BC Liberal governments. I am aware. And uh, I'm, I'm aware that, um, that you know, we have not had a voice in Victoria in our riding. And I think that uh, it, it's really clear that uh, I, I bring a strong voice to the table. And if I were elected in a BC Liberal government in Victoria, I would certainly be vocal about the needs of our community. I'm also a person who uh, prides herself on the ability to get things done and find creative solutions to problems. Throughout my volunteer career, throughout my work career, uh, I think I've distinguished myself at being able to find uh, creative ways to, to solve problems. And so I think that I could bring that energy and that skill and that experience to the table for solving our problems uh, here on the coast. On, on the ferries, uh, Sandra, uh, you mentioned uh, medical uh, passengers, which is a very big deal here, as you're aware. Uh, recently, we had a ministerial order that came down uh, directing BC ferries to uh, accept uh, or give priority to uh, all, all medical passengers who had a doctor's note. Uh, however, BC ferries uh, continued to set out the criteria which uh, it, it had set up before that was very restrictive for doctors in, in terms of giving notes to patients. So it didn't really change things. Uh, I know this has frustrated Mr. Simons and, and he's, uh, he's expressed that to us um, and he's expressed it publicly. But what, what do you do in a situation like that where, where the, the provincial government says you have to start uh, you know, opening up uh, access and, and give priority to, to people who have, have a doctor's note, uh, but then, then BC Ferry says, okay, but we're gonna set the terms for that and the terms are the same as they were before, so nothing changes. What do you do in a case like that? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, 
Oh, it, it's important that BC Ferries and, and the government have a good working relationship. And over the past number of years, I, I think that that has not been the case. Um, and I think that if I were elected and uh, serving in government and working with BC Ferries, uh, that I, I could develop a more collaborative win-win uh, relationship with BC Ferries. Over to you, Sophie. Hi, Sandra. Um, Hi, Sophie. So, yeah, I'm curious, uh, just uh, moving over to the affordable housing front, obviously a chronic uh, issue here on the coast. As my colleague, Sean, he reported earlier this month um, on a recently completed housing needs assessment uh, for the Sunshine Coast. And uh, it states uh, the obvious that we're seeing housing costs rise here. And there's also a severe lack of affordable rental stock on the Sunshine Coast. So just kind of browsing through this morning's platform, um, kind of the t one of the top uh, kind of solutions that, that's uh, included there is an incentive fund that would be created for municipalities with housing policies that enable a kind of a demonstrable increase in the construction and supply of new housing. So I was curious if that's what you see as kind of a primary or a priority here on the Sunshine Coast, bringing that here, and if so, kind of what would that actually look like? Well, I think it is a priority here on the Sunshine Coast. I think, you know, um, affordable housing is a question of supply and demand. And, you know, when, when the supply is very limited and the demand is very high, um, you know, history tells us that the prices are, are going to escalate. And that seems to be, you know, a, a perennial problem here on the coast. And it's been accelerated, I think, because of COVID with more people wanting to move to the coast and get away from, from the, the larger metropolis and have a little bit more space. Uh, you know, I've certainly seen real estate prices uh, and, and the number of sold signs. I mean, I've been around the coast for 25 years and I've never seen as many sold signs uh, as I have recently. So, you know, that is driving prices up. I think that, um, uh, you know, in, in thinking about affordable housing, I like to think of the, the life cycle of people's housing needs from the time that they leave their parents' homes and you know, need to find accommodation to seniors housing and, and uh, long-term care facilities. There's a continuum there. And so I think when we're thinking about housing affordability and housing availability, we always have to think about it in the context of that continuum. I was told by a real estate lawyer uh, who does big developments in Vancouver that a study was recently done by the Real, real Estate Bureau, or and this may be a couple of years, years old now, that they, the, the price of uh, accommodation in the, the lower mainland area has about a 30 to 40% uptick because of fees and uh, charges that, that municipalities put on, uh, on developers. And this includes the, the cost of delays. And I think we only have to look like a, at a project like the George down in Gibson's to see that, you know, that's been 10 years and enormous costs have accrued to that developer that eventually will have to be you know, folded into the price of any housing that ultimately gets developed on that site. So I think the idea of an incentive to municipalities to find ways to expedite the approval process and get stock built and get it on the market and reduce that percentage of costs that are associated with, with building those development cost charges and other fees and, and assessments and, and requirements that municipalities put on developers. It slows development 
and it uh, you know it, it drives up the price of the available stock that's on the market. In terms of uh, seniors housing, our party has committed one billion dollars to improve uh, the, the the quantity uh, the quality of available seniors housing. If I were elected uh, in a BC Liberal government with the demographic in our community, I think we're the highest over 65 um, uh, riding in the province, I would be at the front of the line to make sure that we were getting our fair share and meeting the needs of our aging population here on the coast. Um, I think that, uh, that the other initiative that the, pro uh, that the party has launched of the tax credit for people that want to keep their loved ones at home, but need some additional support. You know, perhaps they need to make um, an adjustment to the, the physical structure of their house so that it's more wheelchair accessible. Perhaps they need to bring in some help with, uh, with food uh, preparation, some help with house cleaning, uh, to lift the burden uh, that the you know the the, the spouse is, is taking on by keeping the person in their home a little bit longer, uh, I think that that's an excellent initiative. Um, which leads me to another issue which been, has been brought to my attention through the course of this campaign, and that is you know we have a, a lot of um, well some that I'm aware of properties farm properties on the Sunshine Coast. And in order to make their, their farms um, financially sustainable, they, they rent out or they lease uh, spaces on their property for mobile homes. And in one case, all of these spaces are occupied by seniors who are on low income uh, rent, uh, low incomes, I should say, with just old age security as their main source of income. And it's really the only way that they can make ends meet by living in a mobile home on these properties. And I understand that the NDP, through the introduction of Bill 52 and Bill 15, are making it impossible for farmers to allow any kind of activity, whether it be a workshop or uh, an RV pad for a permanent, uh, permanent renter, they're not allowing that anymore through those two bill initiatives. And in fact, they've contracted with a U.S. satellite company to spy on our farmers throughout the province. Okay, okay. Sandra, you're starting to, to throw a lot of stuff uh, at us right now, and I want to pause okay. uh, because, uh, I mean, geographic uh, imaging companies are based all over the world, and as you know, the SCRD makes maps using satellites as well. And I don't think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, I don't want to get into the weeds about whether that's spying or not. But I do want to oh, loop. That was getting good. <laughs> I, I do want to loop back to very quickly on the, uh, the long-term care uh, just to uh, uh, get some clarity because, uh, you know, both the, uh, the NDP has said that in terms of long-term care, they do see a role for the private sector. Uh, in the future, although they you know, have a certain vision for how that ought to be regulated. Um, is that also the, the liberal position as well? You see a role for the private sector because many now are calling for that role to end in the wake of what we've seen in COVID. Uh, yes, I do see a role for the private sector. I think that the role that government has to play is setting the standards, accrediting facilities, which is a very detailed process. It happens in hospitals, it happens in long-term care facilities and regulating, ensuring enforcement, uh, enforcement is taking place 
and uh, regu regulating the standards to make sure that those facilities are up to the standards that are set by government. So um, yes, I think that um, uh, engaging with the private sector in a collaborative way to provide long-term long-term care facilities and seniors housing uh, is really important to bringing that capacity on very quickly. Now, so Sophie, I interrupted your uh, your string of questioning on housing-related issues, so I'll steer you back to that if I could. I can't hear Sophie. I can't it's, hear you. It's our first you're on mute moment. Uh, oh no, oh no. Okay. <laughs> um, just in the interest of time, um, I'm just gonna go straight to, from one affordable housing issue to affordable uh, childcare actually. Um, you know, those two things are arguably linked. And again, uh, the platform um, kind of also seems to, to get that link uh, in that, uh, you know, it suggests that there, there could be subsidies uh, given to um, families with an income of under 65,000 uh, for $10 a day uh, childcare. Um, and, uh, but on the Sunshine Coast, arguably, like what we've heard from, from advocates is that actually a, a lack of childcare spaces, um, that's almost, um, you know, that's, that's brought up time and again. So, uh, from your vantage point, I mean, are you, what would you be pushing for here on the coast? Is it that, uh, you know, these subsidies to make it affordable? Is it, um, you know, increasing uh, wages for uh, childcare workers? Um, is, it, uh, is it creating spaces? What do you see as the major issue that needs to be dealt with here? Well, I think that um, availability of childcare spaces is in fact a, a problem here on the coast. We have very limited number of uh, accredited uh, child care providers. So I think in improving that. And, um, you know, if that's going to be done by the private sector, once again, I think that the stimulus uh, to provide some supports and some encouragement uh, to, to build the facilities and, uh, and make them financially viable uh, is really important. And that is a part of our, our platform. Can I just talk about rental rental stock as well in terms of that spectrum of housing affordability do we have time just uh, i would think so and i'm not sure if sophie had a specific question around those issues either coming up so um if if yeah i mean all all uh all ears on rental obviously here on the coast that i mean we're one of the worst communities in terms of having available rental so um so go ahead, curious what you, sure, what, what would you do to address that? Well, I, I, I agree, the rental market is, is really tight and uh, it puts people in a position where they're you know, competing and if they happen to lose their rental accommodation, I know the angst that people can feel in trying to, uh, trying to find more rental uh, accommodation. So I think uh, you know, part of the, the, the solution is making it more attractive for people to build rental stock. Um, I also think, and I don't have the answer on this, but it's certainly something that has come to my attention. I've noticed that uh, there's a, a lot of properties on the coast that would be appropriate for renting to long-term renters that are being used as Airbnb or vacation rental by owner. And um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't deny people the opportunity to do that, 
I just think we need to take a long, hard look at it in terms of are they playing on the same level playing field with our other uh, vacation providers like motels and, and hotels and resorts? Um, and are, you know, what impact is the, the prevalence of that kind of accommodation having on the availability of, uh, of housing for rent for long-term renters? And I think there may be a need to you know, just kind of look at the balance um, of the, the rights of, of renters versus the rights of landlords and make sure that that balance is, is even um, so that there, you know, there is more incentive for people to rent out their properties. The, the um, Airbnb issue, of course, is something that the local governments have been grappling with uh, for a while now and are continuing to. It is a big issue, but it, uh, that seems to be a, a, a local government issue to a large degree. I would agree, but it certainly does impact on the availability of uh, of, of housing. What, what could the pro I mean, that's the problem. What what could the province do? I mean, on one hand, you've got market forces that are market forces. On the other hand, you've got um, uh, regulation that happens at the local government level. Where where does the province come into the mix? Uh, we we talk about this quite a bit ourselves. Like uh, how how very specifically and concretely how can the province affect the conditions for rentals? Well, I think on a whole range of issues. I mean, the municipal governments are an instrument of the province. On a whole range of issues, I th think that the province has to work hand in hand to to resolve the the, the issues. Um, with the municipalities, I, you know, I think in, uh, for example, uh, our water issue, you know, I would see a role for the province in assisting uh, the municipality to be able to ensure that, you know, it can provide the infrastructure that it will allow for growth and development. So I see it as a, as a collaborative relationship between the two and even three levels of government. Mm -hmm. We are now uh, at the point where we're running quite uh, short on time, so I'll just quickly go around. Uh, Sophie, any uh, any quick last question you want to throw in there? Um, well, I guess one more would just be on the homelessness and um, issue here on the Sunshine Coast, and and also um, maybe more specifically looking at uh, kind of this link that seems to be emerging um, even in, in the platform, and we've heard uh, heard your the Liberal Party leader actually um you know make that link between um you know ensuring safer streets and getting people off drugs and here on the sunshine coast there is an opioid crisis um advocates tell us that stigma is a major problem here uh for, for drug users um do you see that link are you making that link between crime and drugs on the sunshine coast I think that, uh, yes, I am making that link uh, between uh, crime and drugs uh, in our community and in the greater uh, provincial community as well. And is that is that uh, is that a problem? Do you see do you see, um, you know, how these uh, these issues around um, finding getting away from stigmatization, I suppose, is that, is that uh, how, how, if you do see that link, then how are you going to kind of, to ease that, that problem? And to warm you up for the all candidates meetings, we've only got about 40 seconds to squeeze an answer in. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sean. Sophie, uh, the question that, that you asked was, uh, what, what would I do to, uh, to, to, to destigmatize? 
you know, we need to take a close look at our mental health uh, capabilities here on the coast. I don't think that they're adequate for, for the sorts of issues that, that we're seeing. So that would be a priority of mine as well. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for uh, uh, their time and patience with uh, the clock uh, <laughs> this morning. It is yet another reality of the, uh, the Zoom era we live in. So, uh, uh, Sandra, thanks very much for joining us. John and Sophie, thank you very much. Thanks, Sandra, for bearing with us. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. much. You no, know, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for the first of our Coast Reporter Radio interviews with the candidates for Powell River Sunshine Coast. We'll be joined by NDP incumbent Nicholas Simons on October 15th and Green candidate Kim Darwin on the 16th. We've got fresh election news online throughout the week at coastreporter.net, including a special BC Votes 2020 section. I'm Sean Eckford. For editor John Gleason, reporter Sophie Woodruff, and the rest of the team here at the Coast Reporter, thanks for listening.